0: For the kingdom of heaven, <clears throat> oh wait, please turn to me to Matthew 20, verses uh, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foremen, Call the laborers and paid them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last, these last workers only worked one hour. And they have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Do you begrudge me my generosity so that last will be first and the first last?
1: want to thank Aiden for his reading this morning. I do want to apologize real quickly. I don't have 100% of my voice this morning, so uh, go ahead and apologize for that. I might take a sip of water here or there. You know, I had a, a teacher in high school, my English teacher, My I think it was my junior year, but he would have these asthma coughing fits, and, and he would just cough and cough, and he would get mad if you ask him if he was okay, and he said, if, if I fall over and I'm unconscious, don't go get help. You just keep working, and I'm going to say, if I fall over unconscious, please get help, um, I, but I, will, I don't anticipate that happening, and I think it's just a mixture of the, of the mowing the yard, cleaning out the garage, and living in West Texas, so I might take a sip or two of water, but this morning, we want to continue kind of on the, where we left off in our last study in Matthew chapter 19, So I want to do just a quick background on the context that we talked about last time before we get started on what we're going to look at this morning. And as we talked about in our last study, the apostles had just witnessed a very highly respected man approach Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to be saved? And this is who we know as the rich young ruler. And Jesus, knowing this man's heart, says, sell all that you have, give to the poor and come. And follow me. So, as we know, as the story goes, this man was not willing to part with his possessions. He loved them too much, so he walked away. It says he went away sorrowful. And again, this brought up an opportunity for Jesus to teach his disciples a little bit about what was happening there. You see, they couldn't understand why Jesus would allow this man to walk away. Again, he was highly respected overall. You know, Jesus named all these things he must do. He says, "I've done all those since I was a kid." But he wasn't willing to give up the world, his love of this world, to follow Jesus. And it says he went away sorrowful. And again, Jesus saw an opportunity. But those apostles, again, their minds were blown. And it prompts a question from them in Matthew 19 and 25 where they say, who then can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus gives them the answer. He says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And that's where we really left off. But this actually is not the end of the story. And it prompts Peter to ask a question in the very next verse. In verse 27 of Matthew chapter 19, he says, Peter says, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What do I get out of this? You know, Peter's always that guy, isn't he? He's always that guy. He's either going to stick his foot in his mouth. He's going to be all in. He's going to say something that, probably everyone else is thinking he's just brave enough to say it, and it kind of seems that's what he's, he's doing here. He's, he's asking that question, and honestly, it's a pretty valid question. Now, we question the motivation behind that. You know, what was his reason for asking that? But I want to think about that for just a second. I want to think about what these apostles sacrificed at this time. When you compare it to the rich young ruler, who Jesus had just called to give everything up and go and follow Jesus, is probably not much. But we think about those apostles. They probably gave up a few fishing boats. They probably gave up their houses, their modest livelihoods, maybe some time with loved ones. There might have been loved ones or friends that wouldn't, have, wouldn't associate them with them because they were following this man, Jesus. Compared to the rich young ruler, it's not a lot, but to the apostles, they gave Everything. They gave it all and they went and they followed Jesus. But what we see here is they were willing to do what that rich young ruler was not willing to do and that was to get rid of the distractions. They were willing to get rid of the distractions, give up the world and follow Jesus. Now, as apostles, we also know they were men and we know they had issues. And many times we see issues with a little bit of pride, a little bit of self-righteousness, and it seems like Peter is kind of holding on to some of that at this time. Still t- thinking of ter- uh, in terms of a worldly kingdom like we talked about in the, last, in the last study we did. What do I get in exchange for my sacrifice? That seems to be a question that's all about Peter. A question that has a self-righteous tone. Wanting that instant gratification. And as we'll see, Peter gets an answer to that question. And I really don't think it's the answer he was probably looking for. But he does get an answer for that. And we see that starting in the next verse, in verse 28. Jesus replies to this question and he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's an answer, isn't it? It's an answer. But I want to break down this verse for just a minute because I think it gives us a little bit of insight Jesus is thinking here now as Jesus replies here one thing he says in the when we translate it to the ESV it says in the new world well, what does that mean when we think of the new world there's really two ideas two thoughts on this one idea would be that when he's talking about the new world he's talking about the idea of after the second coming of Christ after the resurrection after that's all taken place the, the other thought that I kind of agree with is the idea that this is between basically Acts chapter 2, that, the day of Pentecost, that first, that, that first gospel sermon given by Peter to the second coming of Christ. And there are a few reasons that I believe this. When you look at the King James version of this, instead of in the new world, he uses this word regeneration. Now, the only other time that we see this word used is in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Where Paul says, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Same word, regeneration is used here. He's talking about that idea of obeying the gospel, being buried with him in baptism. What happens when we are buried with him in baptism? We die to our old man and we are raised in a new creature, a new man. Not only that, you look back at what he talks about here. He also doesn't only talk about that idea of regeneration. He talks about how he will sit on his glorious throne. Well, when did that take place? If you look at Mark chapter 16, verse 19, it says, Then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, had t- was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He took his place on his throne after he died, was buried, was resurrected, and he ascended to heaven. You also look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification of for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. We could go on. You continue on in this verse, and it says, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, this is the answer. You're going to sit on a throne. Now, when it talks about the throne he's going to sit on, he talks about a glorious throne. Seems like the 12 thrones that they're going to sit on are more of a throne of judgment. They are going to judge the 12 tribes. Well, what does that mean? Essentially what that means is they're going to sit on these thrones of judgment and judge this new kingdom that's about to be established. And you say, well, how is that? How does that happen? Think about the apostles for just a second. They became the judges of the new kingdom. Not in their own words, not in the words that they spoke, but in the words they were inspired to speak. They became the judges of the new kingdom through the words that they were inspired to speak and to write down. And while they were here on earth, that's exactly what they did. They went around, they went to congregations, and they taught these congregations. They set things in order. They wrote letters to other congregations that they couldn't be at. They were judges of that kingdom. And we think about that still today. Where do we go for our guidance? Where do we go to know how we serve God and how we should serve Jesus Christ? Well, we go to the Word of God. We go to those writings that they wrote judges of that new kingdom and that makes us feel pretty confident that when he uses that word regeneration it's referring to that same regeneration that time between acts chapter two to that second coming of christ that we are still a part of today and that's an answer to the question but again i don't think it's really the answer that he wanted to hear and it, gets a, it get, may get a little worse for Peter in the very next verse because in verse 29 he says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Not only is he answering Peter's question, but he's also going back to that question in Matthew 19 and 25 when they said, Who then can be saved? And the answer here is anyone. Anyone who is willing to make a sacrifice, to give their old life up and dedicate themselves to Jesus Christ, anyone can have access to that reward. And that's what he's saying here. Now we see Jesus here is recognizing the inevitability that that choosing to follow him is going to involve sacrifice of some kind. And I want to think about this sacrifice. I want to think about these things that he has listed here. He talks about things like our houses, our family members, our possessions. Think about those things for just a second. What do those things mean to us in a worldly sense? They mean security. Those are things we cling to, they make us feel secure in this world. When I have a big bank account, I'm feeling pretty secure in a worldly sense, right? When I have a good family, I'm feeling pretty good in a worldly sense. But what Jesus is calling them to do is give up that worldly security and depend on a spiritual security that can only come through Jesus Christ. And the fact is, I'm not telling you this morning that you have to call up your dad, especially today because it's Father's Day. Don't call him up and say, I don't want anything to do with you. That's not what he's saying here. But if our relationship with a family member or with our love of money or with our jobs hinders our service to Christ, we better make a change. And that's exactly what he asked the rich young ruler to do, wasn't it? Give up those possessions so that you can serve me. And he wasn't willing to do it. But again, the apostles made that decision. And because of that, they would receive a hundredfold. I'm going to tell you, if anybody offers you an investment that's going to give you a hundredfold return, you better take it. And Jesus is offering that right here. Now, a lot of people will look at this and they will go to this idea of prosperity gospel and they'll preach, if you'll send me money, you're going to make a lot of money. That's not what we're talking here, about here. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. But I do think it's interesting. When we look at the verse, this verse, Matthew 19 and 29, we like to focus on that top part, don't we? We like to focus on what, we, what we're going to sacrifice, what we're going to lose. And we don't like that. We like to focus on those things, but I think that's the wrong attitude to have. It should be, it should be our focus on what are we gaining from that? What are we going to gain from being a Christian? Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm going to be a bank, I'm going to have a, a large bank account. I could show, I'm not going to, I could show you I don't. I'm not going to. But what it does mean is I receive blessings. If you look at Mark's version of this in Mark chapter 10, he talks about blessings in this life and the next. You're going to be blessed in this life and the next. Well, think about that. I think about my life as a Christian. I think about the fact that, you know, I might not have some of the same friends that I used to have. Maybe they didn't agree with the lifestyle change that I had when I became a Christian. But guess what? I gained so many more. I gained brothers, I gained sisters, I gained fathers, I gained mothers in the church. And what a blessing that is. I think about the fellowship we have. I think about the peace and the joy that comes from Jesus Christ and from God when I submit to him. We could go on and on about the blessings that we gain from becoming a Christian. And that's what it's being said here. You're going to gain so much. But even if I gained nothing positive in this life from being a Christian, guess what? I can inherit eternal life. I have an opportunity to have eternal life with God. And what a blessing that is. And that's far more important than anything I'm going to sacrifice here in this life. promise of something far better. In Romans 8, verse 16, he says, The Spirit... Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Are we willing to make those sacrifices? Because if we are, and we're willing to dedicate ourselves to Jesus Christ in service to Him, guess what? We can have eternal life. We can have an eternal life with Him in heaven. And what a blessing that is. Now, Jesus goes on in the next verse, and he says something that seems pretty odd to us. In verse 30, he says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And with this comment, he's probably more than likely referring back to Peter's question about what am I going to get out of this? What special treatment am I going to get from this in verse 27? Maybe he's giving a warning to Peter and the others. You think back to the apostles, and we see over and over, apostles have, an eye, have a sense of pride at times. Again, they're human. They're going to hold on to some of those worldly things. And this was obviously something they had issues with at times. You think back to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1. We talked about that in our last study, how they were arguing over their rank and their importance in the kingdom. And what did Jesus do? He called that child over, and he says, unless you humble yourself like this child. Their heart was full of pride. Luke 22, 24 is very similar to that, arguing over their rank and their status. In Matthew chapter 20, the height of embarrassment, James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, I want one of my sons to sit on my right and one on my left. I'm going to tell you, Quinn or Livy, sometimes they, this is my Father's Day story, sometimes they come to me and they tell me about all the bad things that happened at school and their teachers are unfair and they're mean and kids aren't nice and you know what I say I'm gonna go have a talk with them you know what they say no and I can just see James and John when their mom's up there talking Jesus what is she saying to him what is happening but the fact is is this kind of seems what Peter's doing here he's got a little bit of pride in his heart and he's wanting to know what he is going to get out of this What's going to be his? But the fact is is when we look at that idea of the first being last and the last first, it makes sense. We think about what just happened with the rich young ruler. In the eyes of the apostle, this was a pretty amazing guy, wasn't he? He had done all these great things throughout his life. He was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, he was important. In the eyes of the apostles, and I'm sure many others, I'm sure they thought, he's first in line, isn't he? But guess what? He walked away sorrowful. I think of Judas, who is in the, in the midst during this teaching. Judas, who is an apostle, who is one of those first men who came and gave up everything to follow Christ. And guess what? For a few pieces of silver, he betrayed Jesus Christ. The first sometimes going to be last. But then you think to the inverse, the last are sometimes going to be first. And you think of that, that lady in Mark chapter 12 who was very poor and didn't have much. And you had all of these people giving all of these lavish amounts of money. And she had two coins to give. And you know what she gave? Two coins. She gave everything she had. Jesus noticed that. He talked about that. It was important. So that person who we may think is last may actually do pretty well, right? And it makes sense. That idea makes sense to us when we think about it. But the way that the Bible stops here and goes to another chapter really doesn't flow with the idea. Because you go to the very next verse in the very next chapter, and it seems like he's talking about the exact same conversation, And we want to talk about that this morning. Now, I'm not going to go back through it because Aiden did a great job reading this parable. I do want to give a quick overview. And I made this amazing graph for you so you have a visual to see. So I want to go through that real quick and let's talk about that. So when we think about this parable, you had this, this master of the house, as the ESV calls it, a landowner. And he had this vineyard, and apparently there's a lot of work to do in this vineyard. There's a lot going on. He needs a lot of workers, so he goes out first thing in the morning. Now, when you think about the workday at this period of time, in this, time of, in this day in time, it was a 12-hour workday. You worked from 6 a.m. all the way to 6 p.m. So that's what he was going to hire these people to do. So he goes out to the marketplace where he can find workers, and he finds some people. And they're willing to work, and they agree on one denarius, for the whole day's work for that 12 hours okay so they have the blue represents the amount of work impressive right so then three hours later apparently there's still a lot of work to do so he goes out and he gets more people now they don't really agree on the denarius but what he says is i'll pay you fairly so they make the agreement they go out and they work again he goes out at 12 and 3 and the same thing happens now at five o'clock 5 p.m., you have one hour left to work. At 5 p.m., he goes out and he finds some people waiting. He says, Come on and work for me. And they don't even talk about pay. Apparently, they just assume that they're going to be paid fairly because they go out and they work. Now, at 6 p.m., that landowner comes back and he calls his foreman out and he says, I want you to line up. He's very specific about how he wants these people to be paid. So he calls them out and he lines them up. And he he says, I want you to pay those who came in last first all the way down to those who came in first. They get paid last. So you have the 5 p.m. people coming who have worked one hour and they get paid first. Then you have the 3, then you have the 12, then you have the 9, then you have the 6. And as he begins to pay, he starts paying those 5 p.m. and he gives them one denarius. Well, that sounds pretty familiar, right? Well, that's because what he agreed with the 6 a.m. people for. So essentially, for one hour of work, they're getting a whole day's pay. He does the same with the 3, the 12, and the 9. Well, the 6 a.m. people, are either getting really nervous or really happy because they're starting to wonder, I'm gonna get paid more. I'm gonna get some extra pay. I mean, this guy worked an hour, and he got what he agreed. Surely, we're gonna get more pay. Well, the foreman comes, and he gives them one denarius, and they get upset And we kind of understand that, right? We get it. It's not fair. Those people that came in for an hour weren't even out in the heat of the day and yet they get paid the same amount as I got paid and I was here all day long for 12 hours? It's not fair. Shouldn't work that way. But the master replies to that. He hears their grumbling. He hears their murmuring against them. And he says, I've done you no wrong. And really he didn't. Why? Because at, at... 5.45 a.m. or whatever it was, when he made this agreement, they agreed on one denarius. And that's exactly what he paid them. He paid them what was fair. He paid them a good day's wage. He then says, can I not do what I choose with what's mine? And then he repeats that same thing he said in Matthew chapter 19 and 30, but he flips it. He says, so then the last will be first. In the first last. So let's just do a quick overview again. That landowner is God, the vineyard is his kingdom, the laborers are those who are willing to work, and the work is the service in the kingdom. And with Jesus ending this parable this way, there is no question, not only that, when you look at the first word of this parable, it's four, it's referring right back to Matthew 19 and 30. But there's no question that this is a continuation of the response to Peter's question. In Matthew nineteen twenty-seven, what do I get? Peter kind of sounds like that 6 a.m. guy, doesn't he? I've been here all day. What do I get? I've been here from the beginning. What am I going to get? Almost like I'm going to get some kind of special treatment. You know, when we look at this parable many times, we don't consider those three verses before, those four verses before really the whole chapter before. A lot of times we don't consider that, and we think of this as maybe a teaching for the Jews and the Gentiles. Maybe it's a a teaching for those who were early to the, maybe when they were 12 years old, they became a Christian and they were faithful their whole life, and then you have somebody who's 90 years old, and they accept that invitation. And really, this applies to those things. I'm not saying it doesn't. But I think there's a lot that can be learned from the situation that's happening right here, when you have these apostles, when you have Peter asking this question, what do I get? That self-righteous, prideful attitude, and I want to look at just a few of those lessons this morning. And the first lesson I want to think about this morning as we begin to look at that is there was plenty of work to do, and each one of those workers accepted the invitation. When that opportunity arose, they accepted the invitation, and they went out and they worked. They worked. There was plenty of work to do, and that's obvious from the fact that every, pretty much every three hours, that landowner went out to find more people to work. You think about those men who started at 6 a.m. They wanted to work. If they didn't want to work, they wouldn't have been out there. If they didn't want to work, they wouldn't accept it and made an agreement to go out and work for a denarius a day. They wanted to work. But you have to say the same thing about those people who went out at 5 p.m., In verse 2 of Matthew or 6 of Matthew chapter 20, the landowner goes out, and this is his question. He says, Why do you stand here idle all day? You know what their answer was? Because no one has hired us. They had a different opportunity. They didn't have the opportunity to go put in six full hours. Does that make or 12 full hours? Does that make the 6 a.m. person better than the 5 p.m. person? No. I have no doubt that those men, if they were asked to go out at 6 a.m., they would have gone out and they would have worked all day for the same pay. What mattered is that they were there ready to accept the invitation. They were ready to do the work. They were willing to get it done and get the job done. And when looking at the apostles specifically, Peter, when asking this question, Think about Peter in this position. He he was one of the first ones called to go out and drop everything and go serve Jesus Christ. They were given a great opportunity, and they did exactly what they needed to do. They left the world, and they served Jesus Christ. But does that mean there's not others in Scripture who gave everything? Absolutely not. I think about people like Stephen, I think about Barnabas, I think about Titus, I think about Paul. Yeah, they weren't the first ones called. But when the opportunity came, they were ready and they were willing and they accepted the job. And they went out and they worked for the kingdom. Do they get less reward because of that? Because they weren't the first ones called? No, the reward's equal. It's eternal life. Same goes for Jews or Gentiles if you want to look at it that way. The Jews were the chosen, the chosen people. They were the ones, right? And then those Gentiles come along and all of a sudden they get what we what's ours. But the fact is, it's all it doesn't matter who you are. It's whether you're willing to accept that invitation or not. Are you willing to go out and do the work and to become a part of that kingdom? If we're willing to obey the gospel and are faithful, We can have the same reward as Peter did. We can have eternal life. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 8, he says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. How do we? Well, we accept that, that invitation and we sow what we need to be sowing. We live a life for Christ. And if we do that, guess what? We are going to have that reward also. And what a wonderful thought that is. And it still rings true today, just like it did back then. There's enough work for everyone. Jesus said it in Matthew 9 and verse 37, when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. There's a lot of work to do, and there's not that many people out there doing it. There's opportunities. Are we willing to accept those opportunities? Are we willing to go out and do what we need to do? Are we willing to obey the gospel become a part of that kingdom and become a member of the church, become a member of that kingdom? And the great thing is, is it doesn't matter the color of my skin. It doesn't matter my nationality. It doesn't matter what I've done. That invitation is to me, and it's up to me to accept that invitation. But how is that fair? It's just not fair, is it? And I kind of wonder if this was Peter's reaction when Jesus answered the question, that anyone can have what you have. I kinda, you you kind of wonder Is that what Peter was thinking? I think sometimes we have similar attitudes to that, don't we? We look at all we do for the kingdom and we think pretty highly of ourselves. We like to pat ourselves on the back. Sometimes we even tend to look down on others who we might feel aren't doing what we're doing. Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector for just a second. in Luke chapter 18. Talk about the difference in those who we think might be first and those who we might think it has last, right? You have that Pharisee who is the religious elite of the time, who knows the word of God, who's seen out doing some good works. And then you have this tax collector that everyone despises, but I, see, I want us to see who Jesus is calling out here. So as the Pharisee goes out, here's what he says. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he goes out and he says, I've done all of these great things. And he, he gives this laundry list of these wonderful works that he's done. So he calls out this tax collector, but then Jesus mentions the tax collector right after. And what he says is, is he wouldn't even look to heaven. And he beat his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Guess who was justified? not those who we thought would be first, right? It's that guy that people look down on. It's that tax collector. But it says he's justified. Why? Because he was willing to humble himself. He understood that he was not worthy. He understood he didn't deserve it. But yet God was merciful and willing to give that gift anyway. And what a blessing that is. Sometimes I think we inadvertently try to turn our salvation into a system of merit. But the good thing is our second point. Salvation is not based on my good works. It's based on the grace of God in sending his son to die on the cross for each one of us. But again, I think sometimes we try to base it on our own merit. I've gone to church, every church service for the last 35 years, never missed one. I've done all these great things. I go out and I help and I give to the poor. I I do all of these wonderful things. And then we kind of get that idea of, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? And with this type of attitude, we walk dangerously close to a line that touts our religious accomplishments by comparing it to others. That's dangerous. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be out there helping the poor, cleaning the building, teaching the Word. We should be. I read a a quote in one of the commentaries I was looking at, and I thought it was great. It says, our greatest difficulty as a Christian can sometimes be admitting that in Christ, our religious achievements and status mean absolutely nothing as an exchange for our salvation. In Christ, it's hard for us to accept that I can go out and I can work 15 hours a day for Christ every day, and it's still not going to be enough. It's hard to admit. It's hard to take that in. What that means is is we can never earn our salvation on our own merit. Never. No matter what we do. What matters is, are we living this life for the right reasons? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Are we motivated by our faith in, in him? Do we do it to express our love for him? Are we doing it for some other reason? Because the fact is, is God knows our heart. Proverbs 21, 2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. He's going to know. But the fact is, is we've been given a gift. A gift of grace that while we can't do it on our own, while our good works are never going to be enough, Christ made it to where we can be forgiven. Ephesians 2, verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, It is the gift of God. It's a gift. Do we see that as a gift? It's not based on our merit. Because the fact is, and this leads us to our next point, is that we can't afford to base our salvation on our own merit. We can't. Again, we could never do enough. You think about those workers who worked all day long. And they seem to have a case, at least in our worldly eyes, but they worked harder, they worked longer, They worked in the heat of the day. They did more. But when you look at the deal that they made, they made a fair deal. They agreed to one denarius a day. And from the research I've seen, that was fair pay. That was a typical day's work. That was typically what a Roman soldier would get paid for a day's work. One denarius. So it was a fair pay. It wasn't a problem with what they were getting. It was a problem that they were comparing themselves to others doing the same job. That was the problem. And they saw that these men worked less and they they didn't get any more than them. It made them upset. Do we do that at times? Do we look at our brothers and sisters and pat ourselves on the back for a job well done? Do we put others down for what we view as a lack of... Dedication to the kingdom. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't go out and motivate our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should. But are we doing it with a proper motive, with a proper heart? What we have to understand is that we can't make our basis of comparison on how good we are or how well we, we are doing based on somebody else. We need to judge ourselves. We need to, we need to put ourselves against a higher standard, and that's the Word of God. And we need to strive to do that every day, strive to live for Him. Every single day of our lives. Because again, we can never pay the debt that we owe. We'll always fall short. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul talks about this. He says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's our nature. We're just like everyone else, we're sinners. You know, sometimes we talk about the greatest hits or the great playlists. I don't know what we call them sometimes, but you get the idea. Romans chapter 6 and 23 is one we use a lot, but I can't find a verse that's more concise on what we earn as a sinner. He says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we get. That's what we deserve. We're all sinners. And when we sin, even once we incur a debt that we cannot pay on our own. We can do nothing about on our own. No amount of good works will ever pay that debt. And think about that for a moment. But we see people in Scripture many times who try to revert back to the old law, who tried to find justification in that instead of Christ. Paul talks about that. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, here was their answer. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it apart from Christ. You have to have Christ. But luckily, he was willing to die for us. Romans 8, 3 says, for, by God, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. He did what the law can do. He did what we can't do. He sacrificed himself. He shed his blood so that we could be covered by that blood and be forgiven of our sins. And that debt can be paid. But again, that's a gift just like he talks about in Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's a gift we have to accept. It's an invitation we have to accept. Are we willing to accept that? And I think that takes us back to the idea of our mindset. That we must understand that we're not deserving. And that's hard for us. When we live in a nation that tells us that it's all about us, that we need to follow our heart and we need to do what's best for us, and then God in the Scripture tells us that it's not about us and that we're truly undeserving. And Jesus says that in Luke chapter 17, and verse 7. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Peter kind of had that idea that I'm doing a lot for you. What do I get? And what Jesus is saying here is that we have an understanding that when we go out and we do those good works, when we go out and we help others, that is our duty. And we're still unworthy. On our own, we're unworthy. We're unworthy. Again, hard for us to accept. We're unworthy. But the fact is, is we have a Savior loved us we have a a God who saw our need who saw our hopelessness and understood that yes we may be unworthy but through Christ we can be justified through Jesus Christ we can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ our sins can be washed away and such that's such an amazing thought Think about the idea of being an unworthy servant. When we get to have that attitude like Peter, sometimes we start thinking pretty highly of ourselves, we start feeling pretty good about ourselves. But the problem with that is is when we start relying more on ourselves, we start relying less on God. We start forgetting the gift that was given for us, and we start taking that for granted. But when we understand we're unworthy and underserving, we'll never take for granted the gift of eternal life, the gift of salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to go back to Titus chapter 3 real quick. In verse 4 he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, not because of what we've done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's, that's it's amazing. amazing amazing to know that even though we're unworthy, even though we're undeserving God saw our need and he loved us enough to fulfill that need and he did that by sending his son to die on the cross and through our obedience to the gospel obeying him in in baptism and, and going into that water that old man dies and that regeneration happens we become a new creature and we can have salvation through that and if you're here this morning and you've never taken part in that, I encourage you to do that this morning. Become a part of the kingdom. This is the opportunity we talked about. Accept that opportunity at this point and become a worker in the kingdom. If you're here this morning and you've never, or maybe you're just struggling at this time, maybe you have something, you need a, You need presence of the church. You remember those blessings we talked about that come from being a Christian? That's part of it. We can pray for you, we can pray with you, and we can support you with whatever we need to to do to help you in that time of need, if you'll come to the front as we stand and sing.